1893 in southwest England. Disaffected church member William Jarman continues his lying ways, making a living giving sensational lectures and disrupting missionary work throughout the country. This story and more are next in Chapter 2, as we prove ourselves ready. This is Saints, Volume 3, the podcast. Welcome to the Saints podcast. I'm James Perry. And I'm Shailen Back. And today we're going to be discussing Chapter 2 of Saints, Volume 3, as we prove ourselves ready. Joining us today is Lisa Olson-Tate, who is a general editor on the Saints Project. Welcome to the podcast, Lisa. Hi, James. Glad to be here. Well, Lisa, thank you for coming back to join us for this third season. Perhaps we could begin with you telling our listeners, new and old, a little bit more about what you do here in the church history department. Okay. I am a historian and writer, and my background is in women's history and in late 19th, early 20th century history. So volume three of Saints is right within my wheelhouse, and I've really, really enjoyed working on it. I'm a volume editor for this one, which means that I am one of the historians who helps to plan and outline and review all the chapters in the book and to make sure that we're telling the right stories and telling them the right way. I also work on the women's history team in the department, and we are just completing a book manuscript on the history of the Young Women Organization. It still has to go through editing and reviews and and a production process, so it won't be out for a while longer yet, but we've kind of completed the, the bulk of our work on it, and it's going to be a really, really exciting and interesting book that I think people can look forward to. Well, I know I'm eager to read the book when it comes out. Well, here in chapter two, there are several very interesting things going on. We find ourselves changing gears from chapter one, and we find ourselves in Europe. And for some of the church leaders and members, things aren't going perhaps as well as they might like. Could you begin by telling us a little bit about who William Jarman is and why he's causing so much trouble? Yeah, William Jarman is an Englishman who joined the church, I think, back in the 1860s and came to Utah for a period of time, but seems like he was kind of ethically challenged all along and had some colorful episodes with like his business dealings and so forth. But he comes disaffected from the church and moves back to England. And by this time in the 1890s, he's actually making a living giving lectures against the Mormons, as he calls them, as the the Latter-day Saints. He's publishing pamphlets and things and is really stirring up a lot of opposition to the Latter-day Saints, and that's making things difficult for the missionaries and the members in England at the time. So now let's just listen to an extract from this chapter, which tells us a little bit more about William and his ways. Life in Zion did not change William's ways. He proved to be an abusive husband, and both Maria and Emily divorced him. He was also charged with grand larceny, which landed him in prison until the courts dismissed the case. He became disillusioned with the church, began earning a living lecturing against it, and returned to England. 
Often, he moved audiences to tears with a heart-wrenching story that accused the saints of murdering his oldest son, Albert. I was so fascinated by William Jarman and that he was making money turning people against the church. And it's just fascinating because he wasn't truthful. I mean, we read that he was abusive. He wasn't honest. And as we read the chapter, we find out that his son, Albert, isn't even dead. So Lisa, how does Albert deal with his father? How does he handle knowing that his dad's kind of using him to spread these vicious rumors about the church? Albert Jarman, uh, the old the son, he ends up back in England as a missionary. So he's not really sure. He He wants to make contact with his father and he's not really sure what to do. So he consults with President Anthony Lund, who's the president of the mission at the time. And he, President Lund advises him to write a nice letter to his father. So uh, Albert does that. And in the chapter, it quotes from that letter and shows that he's very conciliatory towards his dad. The response that he gets from his dad is, well, you better come down and I'll be pleased to see you. And his, you know, Albert's mom is a little bit worried about that, but he decides to go ahead and go down and meet with his father and, and maybe meet some of his other relatives. And that's where we leave it in this chapter. So you'll have to read the other chapters to find out the rest of the story. So we're certainly going to come back to William Jarman in later chapters and find out more about his impact on the church. But we know that this was not an easy time for the church in Europe as a whole. We've read here just a small taste of what's going on. Perhaps we could talk about Anton Lund and some of the challenges he was experiencing as a church leader over Europe in the 1890s. President Lund, and I guess I could say we're not entirely sure if we if it's pronounced Anton or Anthon, but We'll go with Anthon as the, probably the Americanized version of his name. President Lund was a member of the Quorum of the Twelve at this point, and he's one of the really great leaders of the church at this time that people don't know very much about anymore. But he was a brilliant young man. He joined the church at the age of 12. He was the top student in his school. He learned several languages. He was very well educated and brought a lot of gifts and abilities to the church. And when he emigrated to Utah in the 1860s, then he lived for a while down in the San Pete area of Utah, which is where a lot of Scandinavian saints had settled, but eventually comes to the attention of the church leadership and distinguishes himself and is called as a member of the Quorum of the Twelve in 1889, and then goes to Europe as the European mission president I think in 1893, and the headquarters for the European mission were in Liverpool, England. So even though he's overseeing all of Europe, and as it says here in the chapter, the, the European mission even takes in parts of Turkey at the time, he is headquartered in England, in Liverpool. And this situation that's going on with William Jarman is definitely not a one-off. It's not unique. There's a lot of opposition to the church at this time. A lot of it is based on anti-polygamy fears and rumors and sentiments where there are accusations against the missionaries for just trying to recruit young women to take them back to Utah to become plural wives. And 
that plays into actually some immigration restrictions that are put in place by governments to restrict Mormon immigration, Latter-day Saint immigration into the United States at the time. So that's one of the things, I mean, within the branches at the time, throughout the 19th century, there was this spirit of the gathering that Latter-day Saints felt and were encouraged to follow as they joined the church. And so what that meant is that there may be a large number of people who joined the church in England, in Denmark, in these various countries. But the goal from the time they're baptized very often is to get to Zion, to move to Utah. And so it makes the local branches, the local congregations quite transient. It causes the numbers to dwindle. So there's always this challenge of needing leadership in the local areas and of the numbers of saints there being in flux. But as I said, with the opposition to the church, that's one of the factors, but it's a difficult time for emigration in general, again, because of the opposition, but also there's a worldwide economic depression going on in the mid-1890s. In fact, it's the worst depression until the Great Depression of the 1930s. It lasts for much of the 1890s, and it's just a devastating economic situation in the United States and beyond. And so that affects the living conditions and the ability of people to immigrate and so forth. And then also in the course of the United States government campaign against the Latter-day Saints and against polygamy, the PEF or Perpetual Emigrating Fund, as it was known, that had helped many saints finance their emigration to Zion. That was disbanded, that was discontinued, and so those funds were not available to people at the time to help them with their immigration. And the leaders of the church at the time, there's kind of this transitional period setting in where emigration is going to be less encouraged less automatically assumed that that's what the saints are going to do, but they haven't yet developed the full church program, if you will, the full church structure in the missions in places other than Zion. And so there's kind of a transitional period that makes for some real challenges for the church and the leaders and the members on the ground in these countries. So Europe, it's interesting to see that it goes through these waves, these periods of growth, periods of retraction, periods where the growth goes negative and members of the church continue to leave and not enough converts. How much of a threat was this to the church? How significant had the European mission been for the church? Well, it had been the source of the vast majority of converts that had come to Zion and joined the church clear back since the 1830s and 40s with the first international missions of the church were in Europe. So it was really a significant stronghold, if you will, or at least a center of missionary work for the church. And I'd be interested to hear some of your perspective on that as well, James, because I know this is an area that you have done a lot of study and research in. Yes. The period that we're talking about here in Europe is such an unusual one in the sense that there are areas where they're breaking into new territory. And just a a couple of years after this point, we see new congregations being formed in more rural locations. Dublin, a branch has formed. But these are real issues that the missionaries are grappling with. If I was a missionary, this would have been a difficult time. Few members, 
there's the responsibility of the local congregations on your shoulder. You have all of these preachers trying to, to tear you down. This is a challenging time, not just for the church, but to be a missionary. And this is a, a real moment of refinement, I'm sure, for many of these young men who are going out on missions. I just think it's fascinating too now to contrast this to where we are today. And I just look at the church around the world and it's amazing that now the encouragement isn't to gather in one place, but it's to strengthen the congregations where you are right now, where you live. So I think that that's been neat to see that growth throughout the world. And we're going to see that throughout the course of volume three. This is going to be one of the major stories that we're going to trace is that shift in understanding of what gathering means and where the locus for gathering is to be. Great. I really like that. I'm sure our European readers are going to be interested to get this insight into what the church used to be like in Europe. Many of the stories that we talk about in church history here in Europe concern those very, very early days, the arrival of the missionaries, the the rich harvests. But I think this period, you know, we're talking the 1890s onwards, This is a period of time that much less is known about by members of the church. So I'm sure all of our readers will be fascinated. But for those in Europe, for example, these are challenges that many of them have not necessarily experienced. And so this is a real glimpse into the past to look at some of the challenges that were overcome. So I think while the church is dealing with these issues in Europe, we've got missionaries and mission presidents grappling with How do we keep the church going? If we pivot slightly and we come on over back to the United States, we have senior church leaders, some of whom are Europeans, who are grappling with some pretty significant doctrinal and and long-term practices. And I'm thinking here about the practice of adoption ceilings, which is something that we are talking about here in this chapter. For our listeners who may be unfamiliar with adoption ceilings, could you give a little bit of context as to what they are and why they're an issue? There's something that's not very well known anymore, that frankly, even at the time from the idea kind of is introduced in Nauvoo and then persists through the almost the rest of the century. And church leaders, even at the time, always kind of grappled with trying to understand this idea. It's part of the developing understanding of sealing and the developing understanding, as Joseph Smith taught, that there has to be a welding link between the human family. And the fundamental concern is, what are the relationships in the next life going to look like? And At this point, they don't really have a very developed understanding of the idea of the gospel being preached in the spirit world and people having the opportunity to accept or reject or receive ordinances and so forth. And so they're more concerned about, well, what was the status of the person in this life? And there's a feeling that I need to be sealed to a parent who was faithful, a parent who had the priesthood, a parent who I can rely upon to link me in this chain of people who will be saved in the celestial kingdom, who will live there together. 
So for the first generation of Latter-day Saints, many of whom have left their families behind, their family relationships have been ruptured by their joining the church, they're looking to the leaders of the church as their safe, reliable connection to the priesthood and to the blessings of eternity. And so this seems to be the understanding by which they begin performing these adoption sealings, where a man and his wife would be sealed to or adopted to another man, usually a church leader who was a a faithful priesthood holder that they felt would be a reliable link for them. Well, Lisa, thank you. That helps it to make more sense in my mind, because I've heard of this before, but it was more of you know, kind of like a one-off thing. I didn't realize that it was a much larger practice at the time. And it makes sense that they would want to attach themselves to somebody to ensure their exaltation. But I think now I'm grateful for our understanding of ceilings in that ultimately Heavenly Father just wants us to be sealed ultimately to everybody. And in the book, we have this excerpt from George Q. Cannon, who at the time was a member of the First Presidency. And he shares his thoughts about it. George had been uncomfortable with adoption sealings for many years. As a young man in Nauvoo, he had been sealed by adoption to his uncle John Taylor's family, even though his parents had been faithful church members. Other church members had also chosen to be sealed to apostles rather than their own faithful Latter-day Saint parents. George now believed this practice had created some clannishness among the saints, and in 1890, he and his siblings canceled their sealing to the Taylor family and were sealed instead to their own deceased parents in the St. George Temple, affirming the bonds of natural affection within their family. So, Something that interests me if we take a step back for just one moment is that George Cannon here is thinking not just about all of the duties that he has in the First Presidency. I mean, they're dealing with these financial crises. He's got all of these burdensome administrative responsibilities. But he and other church leaders are thinking about the practical, spiritual aspects of their faith, you know, such as should he be sealed to his parents who are these faithful Latter-day Saints, or should he remain sealed to his uncle, prominent church leader? And I think this just goes to show that as church leaders themselves, they had questions, they had desires to receive further understanding. And as the restoration of the gospel continues to unfold, answers to these questions come about and changes to practices are adjusted accordingly. I appreciate here the weight of responsibility on George's shoulders, but yet he's still thinking about his own family connections and thinking about the salvation and exaltation of his loved ones. And I think he recognizes and realizes that that applies beyond his own family, that these are questions that apply to the whole church. And then the implications of the answers to these questions are things that the church leaders need to better understand so that they can teach the saints and order the practices accordingly. And I think we should probably talk a little bit about Wilford Woodruff now and and his role in all of this. Again, I think as members of the church, we're somewhat familiar with Wilford Woodruff, and we've been reading about him in Saints all along. And I hope readers will remember from volume two how deeply involved 
President Woodruff was in the St. George Temple and in the establishment of the full slate of temple ordinances that took place after the dedication of the St. George Temple with all of the proxy word for the dead that had never been fully implemented before. I think church members generally are familiar with his vision of spirits of important people who came to him and asked for their work to be done. And he spent so much time. I really believe that President Woodruff had a special stewardship and a special calling as a prophet in establishing and working out and having stewardship over the temple and the temple ordinances. You'll recall that when it came down to the decision point about plural marriage, that he framed that in terms of the temple and understanding that if they held on to plural marriage, they were going to lose the temples and that his vision was that we had to have the temple. And so that helped in the revelation that needed to come in order to know how to move forward on plural marriage. So it makes a lot of sense, given his background and preparation, that President Woodruff would receive this revelation that came in 1894 that helped the saints to understand the importance of the genealogical line, the kinship line, the bloodline in doing genealogy and temple work. And that was as this chapter shows, that was a major turning point and a really important development for the church and for the saints in furthering their understanding about temples, temple work, and the nature of sealing, the nature of salvation as families. Just so many things that we take for granted now can be traced back to this revelation. Lisa, how did the saints react to these changes and these perspective shifts in understanding? I think they had been prepared for this. I mean, there had been over the recent years, you know, there had been a lot of emphasis on finding your kin and on on doing work for the dead. And so I think on one level, it just made a lot of sense and kind of solidified maybe a forming understanding that hadn't been fully articulated. But I mean, one measure of how it was received is that within a few months of President Woodruff announcing this revelation and explaining it in general conference, the church forms the Genealogical Society of Utah. And this is the forerunner of the Family History Department, Family Search, you know, the enormous family history operation that the church has now. So it very quickly they move to formalize this understanding and, if you will, operationalize it to get people involved and provide channels and and a structure for pursuing the genealogy work that will be necessary in order to put this understanding of temple ordinances into operation. I also think this is a really important point, you know, Wilfred Woodruff's announcement of these new insights, as it were, the the way that things were going to be moving forward. This is really significant for a lot of saints, you know, who don't have family members who are are Latter-day Saints, or perhaps have had these questions, they're they're getting answers. And I'm sure some of these people would have loved to have had the answers a few years earlier. But the fact remains is that through Wilford Woodruff as a prophet of the Lord, they were able to get further light, further knowledge, further insights into how things were going to be. And I think in this chapter, President Woodruff poses some really great questions. Why deprive a woman of being sealed to her husband because he never heard the gospel? What do any of us know with regard to him? And it just goes to highlight that there are 
so many things about the life to come, you know, the, the spirit world and so on, where we don't have that nitty gritty detail that we might love to have. But this is a, a hopeful, outward looking revelation, as it were, for the saints. I think that's right. And I think it's important to recognize how expansive and hopeful President Woodruff's revelation is and the implications of it. He says, there will be very few, if any, who will not receive the gospel. And he's talking about what we now understand. And this comes in part in thanks to President Joseph F. Smith's vision that we'll see later in this volume about how the work of teaching the gospel and accepting the gospel goes on well beyond this life and in the spirit world. Up to this point, people had been afraid. They they couldn't trust their ancestors. They weren't sure if they had accepted the gospel or if they would accept the gospel. And would that put me in a position where I wouldn't receive the blessings because there are breaks in the chain that needs to be sealed? And President Woodruff here and and leaders of the church from this point on began to understand and to teach, no, we don't have to worry about that. The Lord will take care of all of that. We will not be deprived of blessings that we have qualified for and that we have done the work for because of someone else's agency. And it's just a very beautiful, hopeful vision of the Lord's plan. And I think it's in harmony with the, the revelations such as Section 76, Section 88, that show, as as the Revelation says, the Lord saves the works of his hands and salvation, exaltation, the blessings of the gospel, those will be available to everyone. So it helped the saints to understand that their job was not to micromanage salvation in this world, but to make the blessings, to make the ordinances available and trust in the Lord to work out the details. So we see this beautiful revelation coming out, but there are still going to be issues in the lives of the saints. This is just one of the many things that the church and the, its leaderships are working out. And, uh, and now we should turn to Leah Dunford, who is, is really a, a favorite of mine, if I must confess, in the book. She's very unlike me, but she provides, I think, throughout the, the chapters it's featured, just this battle between who is she? What does she want to accomplish? What is she going to do in life? And uh, we'll find out more about her. But here she is as a second generation Utah native. And she hasn't had some of the experiences that some of our earlier characters in volume two and volume one had. You know, she hasn't gone through the trek west she wasn't in that first pioneering generation in, in Utah. She's in many ways an almost unique generation in Utah's history. Yeah, there's actually a really interesting generational configuration among the Latter-day Saints in the 1890s. I describe it as a three-generation constellation. So you have Leah, who represents the younger generation. I call them the railroad generation because they're born after the railroad has come to Utah. And so they never know the isolation that their parents and grandparents had known. There's always two-way communication and commerce going back and forth. And they're growing up in the midst of these really difficult conditions among the Latter-day Saints with all the opposition and a lot more influences coming in. And then you have what I call the frontier generation, which is the generation of Leah's mother, which is Susie Young Gates, who we've met before, and she'll, she's going to be one of our favorite characters in the book moving forward as well. She was born in Utah, 
her generation was born here. They're the children of the pioneers, which is third generation. And they didn't cross the plains and they didn't break with the world to join the church, but they've always been raised within these communities of Latter-day Saints. And they've been raised on the stories of their parents and their parents' faithfulness and the prophet Joseph Smith and people who knew him and so forth. And then, as I said, their generation, so Leah's grandmother, Lucy B. Young, is what I call the pioneer generation. And they're the ones that had all of those formative experiences of crossing the plains and joining the church and so forth. And so what's happening in the 1890s is that this middle generation, this frontier generation, Susie Young Gates, who at this point, she's not in this chapter, but at this point, she is editing the Young Women's Journal. She's a leader in the Young Women's Organization. She's engaged in all kinds of organizations and activities within the community directed towards the youth. And they're kind of mediating between these generations. The pioneers are dying off and they're fading from the scene. And this frontier generation feels like we have to preserve their memory. We have to preserve their stories. And we have to use those stories to inspire faith in this younger railroad generation. And so that's where Leah finds herself as one of the young people of the community at this pivotal time when so much is changing, the contexts are changing, the conditions are changing materially, economically, politically, religiously, like everything's in flux. The 1890s are a real transitional period for the church. And so Leah is looking around and finding her place among her peers and and in the church and comparing herself to those, maybe some who aren't as committed and some who are and and deciding what her relationship with the church is going to be and and with the gospel. I just found this so relatable too, as I was reading about her and she was saying how, you know, other people her age are pursuing making money more than they're pursuing the church. And I can just feel that. I can see it in my peers that it's like there's a lot that we're trying to figure out in our lives and along with balancing being faithful members of the church. And so it's not necessarily just about pursuing money, but it's pursuing education, pursuing our families, pursuing just so many other things. Anyway, I could just feel her wrestle and her struggle is so similar to what I feel and what I see today. Yeah, generational issues are self-renewing because we have a new generation coming along all the time. One of the really important contexts for Leah and her life is the rise of what was called the new woman, which starts to come to the fore in the 1890s. And then it's a transition that takes place into about the 1920s or 30s, but it's a real shift in the opportunities and the conditions of women's lives. Just the fact that she's 22, I think, in this chapter, and she's gone to school, and she's going to have an opportunity to go back east and go to school. And there are all these opportunities, relatively speaking, right, relative to what has been the norm before. There are all these opportunities opening up for women, especially young women, that give them a different sense of themselves, a different sense of their relationship to the world, a different sense of what their possibilities and their potential might be. And so Leah is wrestling with that alongside her figuring out where she fits in with the gospel and what it means to be a faithful Latter-day Saint at this time. And we see that as she goes off to school where she's engaged in this really exciting educational opportunity, but at the same time, she's sharing the gospel and she's distinguishing herself as a Latter-day Saint and holding on to that identity and to the boundaries that that represents in her life. 
Now, in the book, there's the point that young men can look forward to missionary service, but that the young women at this point don't have that opportunity. But this second generation, you know, this this new generation of Latter-day Saint women are kind of struggling a little bit with Relief Society. So what was it about Relief Society that Leah and other young Latter-day Saints her age found so off-putting at this time? Well, in a word, I think we use the term in the chapter, it seemed kind of old-fashioned. And we have to understand that at this time, Relief Society is not a class you go to on Sunday. It's not something you're automatically enrolled in just because you're a member of the church. Relief Society was a voluntary organization. You joined, you paid dues to belong to. And so there was a certain amount of self-selection among women of who would belong to the Relief Society. And there weren't hard and fast age groupings. So this chapter talks about the YLMIA, the Young Ladies Mutual Improvement Association that Leah was involved in. And that's what eventually becomes the Young Women's Organization as we know it today. But at this time, there's no hard and fast upper age limit for that. You could be in the YLMIA until you were in your 20s or 30s. And so there's some overlap in what we would think of as the age group for Relief Society and young women at the time. And I think this is also the beginning of what's called the progressive era, where there's a lot of interest in new things and new ideas and bringing scientific and social science insights to bear on the world and on society's problems. Leah's going to be right in the thick of that with her education. And so I think she's just feeling a lot more identification with the younger groups, the younger cohort, the younger energy, whereas the Relief Society at this time is, frankly, it's mostly women getting together to bear their testimonies. And so there's charitable activities, of course, they're trying to take care of the poor and the needy, but there's not really a structured program for Relief Society at this time. And in the course of volume three, we'll see how that changes. But this kind of gives us a glimpse of a transitional moment when the changes haven't quite happened yet, but they're starting to realize the need for them. It'll be so neat to continue to follow Leah and her progression throughout the yeah. book. I'm excited for that. Yeah, she's a great character. Of course, in this chapter, it talks about her going to meet John Widsow's mother and, you know, we're seeing their relationship develop. And actually in her relationship with John, we see this progressive new woman kind of thinking because they very much see themselves as partners and there's not so much of the traditional male dominance that has structured marriages and families up to this point. They really consciously try to have a new kind of family relationship. I think that's good to give the listener something to look forward to. <laughs> yeah. Well, Lisa, thank you so much. It's a pleasure to have you on the show today and thank you for working on the project and for telling us a little bit more about some of these fascinating stories. Thank you. And we love to remind our listeners about the church history topics where they can learn about additional things that were covered in this chapter, such as sealing, church finances, different people like George Q. Cannon, immigration, church academics, and many more. Until next week, I'm Shailen Back. And I'm James Perry. Thanks for listening. <laughs>